The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Father, thank you for this place and a whole day that we can set aside to think about biblical principles and think about helping others. And now as we think about the state of marriage in our country and as we think about how to prepare the next generation for marriage, that uh, you would help us to have a, uh, just ignite in us a vision and a passion for demonstrating uh, to our young people and to our culture that your ways really do work. Help us to grow in confidence uh, in that area. So I commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to be asking you to just kind of review for me what you heard the last time, but to give you a um, another shot in the arm with confidence. Uh, we, we are living in pretty dark days when it comes to the state of marriage in the United States. And, but the way I like to think of it is that the darker the night, the brighter the light of God's Word shines. So we are, uh, and I have to preach this to myself, but I think we are actually in for our best ministry years ever in the United States. It may not be the most comfortable ministry years. We've had some pretty comfortable ministry years in the United States, but we are in for our best ministry years because people are going to see that the way they're trying to do life doesn't work, and they're going to get desperate for answers. So the darker the night, the brighter the light of God's Word shines, and uh, we have answers for people. So. Uh, I try to preach that to myself in my discouraged days when I'm overwhelmed with marriages that are falling apart and whatever else the, the situation is that comes across my desk or my emails or whatever, uh, that uh, God's ways really do work. What were you hearing the last time? What were you hearing as me trying to emphasize as we help prepare the next generation for marriage? There is a way to prepare. Okay. Not just mystery, that you walk into it, but there is a way to prepare. Yeah. You can actually prepare. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have to wait until marriage. <laughs> you can start earlier. Although some of us wait, not <laughs> knowingly. <laughs> yes. Like the relationship with Christ is paramount. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's just scriptural, right? That's the foundation. What else did you hear? Um, the heart is really the core central issue. <coughs> Why am I doing what am I doing? What am I seeking after, expecting? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the key to that question about this whole mystery. I've read a lot of theory about attractions. There's a lot of interesting theories out there in the secular world about attraction. And uh, so it just intrigues me about what, how does the secular world look at this mystery of attraction? You know, why did you get attracted to your spouse? And there's the, uh, you know, the the uh, perfect spouse image that you have in your mind because of one of your parents and there's all kinds of psychological theories about why we get attracted to people. I think it's as fun, it's just as easily explained as understand the heart and what's going on in the inner person as what you're looking for, wanting, desiring has a lot to do with this whole question of attraction. How about one more? What did you hear the last time? There's one thing in particular I'm hoping you heard, and if you didn't, I'll emphasize it again. Yes? The, the choice that you make should be based on wisdom, based on who the Lord is in your life and what He's instructing you. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for bailing me out, because that's, that's, that's the one I was searching for. I was, I'm hoping somebody heard wisdom uh, here with this whole thing. And what is wisdom? What, what were you hearing as wisdom? Yeah, knowledge plus understanding. So just because somebody has knowledge, that doesn't make them wise. It's how do you take the knowledge that you have, and then the Hebrew word for understanding is discernment. So, and discernment is, it, the, the Hebrew word is between. So being, the Hebrew word means between. So a person who's discerning is having to make choices between. Well, that sounds like relationship. Do I marry this guy or do I marry this guy? Well, um, I'm having to use wisdom of, okay, I have the facts that I need. Now, based upon the facts and based upon the biblical principles, though I know, is this guy a better choice or is this guy a better 
choice. You know, does he have a more solid walk with the Lord than this guy? What's the, where direction is he headed in life? And so I want to teach people to use wisdom and not just based upon my emotions and hormones and chemicals and all those types of things. We just seem like we're supposed to be together. God told me we're supposed to be together. I had one girl tell me she was sitting in a student center and she was praying and crying and praying and crying, when will I ever get married? When will I ever get married? And she walked out of the student center at her university and there was a guy sitting on the step reading his Bible and she thought this must be God's will. <laughs> and she took that as a sign from God that this was finally the guy, this is the guy that God wanted her to marry. So she went up and struck up a conversation with the guy thinking this must be God's leading because I was just praying for this uh, in the student center and found out that his theological background was t radically different than hers and she very quickly realized that could not be what the Lord wanted. We just wouldn't fit together theologically. So what do we teach people? Teach them wisdom. It's not, not feelings. It, primarily it's not mystical hearing voices. It's how do I use biblical thinking to make wise choices in life. And I believe that that actually will lead to a more because I've had people say to me, you know, where's the romance and all this? This just sounds, you know, pretty sterile. Doesn't sound very romantic at all. And I would say you will have a more romantic relationship because it's going to be a relationship based on reality rather than, uh, as I called it before, the princess bride uh, mentality, which obviously is not working for people. So we covered a whole point one. Uh, and now we have a whole lot, as I've already been reminded, I've got a lot to cover. So uh, we've covered the first, or the foundation. Now let's cover the first, start covering the first floor. And what I've done for the first floor is I've covered five, I want to approach five key questions. <clears throat> so all, these are foundational issues. I hope it's obvious why they're foundational type issues. They just seem like they're basic type of issues that everybody has to know. Now, and I'm building from this way up. So, and because we're building a house, so I'm not going this way down. We're building a house, so we're starting here and we're going to keep building our, our home. Uh, it seems like a logical question would be, okay, while I'm waiting, how do I use my single years, right? And I get that question a lot is, well, what about these years right now? And do, what about, you know, I don't think I have the gift of singleness, but what, you know, what am I supposed to do during these single years? And then what relationship skills do I need to be working on? And then out of all these different methodologies of that people are promoting and writing books on, how will I know God's will? How do you discern God's will for the right person? How do you know when you're ready to be married? And then what methodology do you use to find a spouse? And then what I'm going to be building up to is that if you have this foundation and you're building the first floor this way, and I have I like to use what I call my sanctified imagination. So we're building a house. I think of a house and you'll see my home at the very end, I have a roof and guess where the roof is pointing? So I've got a roof pointing up to the glory of God. So what you sow is what you'll reap. You end up with a home that brings more glory to God if you put effort into uh, building the relationship in a wise way. So let's start thinking about how do I use my single years? And I'd like you to turn to that passage if you would. I actually think this is one of the most complicated chapters in the whole New Testament, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, but I'm not going to exegete the passage because uh, that would take a lot of time. But I just want to point out a couple of things. It seems like what was going on is that this church at Corinth was right, sent Paul a list of questions and he's answering the questions for them. And that's why you have in 1 Corinthians this phrase that keeps getting used over now concerning, now concerning, and he's answering a list of questions that they sent. We don't know exactly what the questions were, but according to this chapter, it's obvious that some of the questions must have had to do with things related to marriage, divorce, singleness, etc. So there's a lot in this passage that's written to singles. Um, 
and I'm resisting the urge of going into all the different groups of people that are in this passage, but you have married, you have the what I think of as the previously married, so you, you have widows and then you have divorced people in this passage, but then you have this group that he calls the virgins in uh, starting over in about 20, verse 25, he says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Then, um, I want to show you one verse in particular. What are the types of things that we want people to be thinking about? It has to do with devotion to the Lord again. Uh, verse 35, And this I say for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly, and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So in this chapter where Paul's helping them think through single years, how do you think about marriage, etc., he's urging them in light of, he calls it the present distress, whatever that is, there's all kinds of complicated commentary on what is the present distress that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. But in light of this present distress, he urges them toward undistracted devotion to the Lord. This passage, like no other passage in the New Testament, urges singles to be thinking about things like, do I have the gift of singleness? And I've had singles say to me, why do you even have to bring up that subject? I don't even want to talk about that subject. Do I have the gift of singleness? Well, if you're concerned about it, you probably don't have the gift of singleness. Uh, that would probably be a sign that you, you don't have to worry about this. Uh, the gift of singleness, uh, if you look back at the beginning of the chapter, he says, um, verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them if they remain as I do. But let, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. So he talks about a gift of singleness. Matthew chapter 9 talks about this. And one of the, uh, the ways you know you don't have the gift of singleness would be, do you have a desire to get married? Um, I mean, that's one of the sure signs that this is not a gift that the Lord has given you. And there's, uh, in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, there is a, a great article on what is this gift of singleness. You could, if you know anything about the Journal of Biblical Counseling or have the CD-ROM, you can go back in and do a search and find that, that article on what is the gift of of singleness and the guy did a great job exegeting Matthew 19 and this just to talk about getting some uh, answering some questions uh, giving some questions that singles can answer to help themselves determine do I have the gift of singleness um, we don't have the time to spend on all of the various things in this passage but just to emphasize again from verse 35 the phrase undistracted devotion to the Lord uh, let me keep moving, and let's start thinking about the second one. By the way, just to encourage singles, I, I like to use Psalm 27 to encourage them, because it can be so overwhelming of questions like, who is the right one, when am, am I ever going to get married? And often I go to Psalm 27 just to try to encourage them. Psalm 27, verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then the next verse says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. It just fits so well with a person struggling with singleness of cling, cling to the Lord. He has your good in mind, and as you'll keep... You'll see as I keep building this, he actually is your shepherd, and he is writing a story in your life, and you've just got to cling to that in those years, whenever they are, in your 20s, as you're just wrestling through, and sometimes even older, of what in the world is going on here? Is the right person ever going to come along? Well, wait. Cling to the Lord. Take courage. Uh, the Lord is in control. He actually is shepherding. Now, <clears throat> Psalm 27. It's the end of Psalm 27. This next one is really crucial in my mind, and 
it just seems like a no-brainer to me that we've got to be helping people learn relationship skills earlier than what we are. As I mentioned in the first hour, just because you get married and said, I do, you don't change overnight. You know, you're the same person the day after your marriage or your wedding as you were the day before. And the way you deal with conflict before your wedding is the same way you're going to deal with conflict. The way you relate to your parents, you know, do you run from conflict or do you attack during times of conflict? That's the way you're going to deal with your spouse eventually, uh, especially after the honeymoon stage is over. So I want to start teaching young people earlier, rather, and I mean earlier than premarital counseling. I want to start teaching, I, I mean, I just have a vision that we could start teaching our teenagers, our college students, conflict resolution skills, communication skills, way, don't just wait till premarital counseling to actually start this. Scripture has so much to say about these relationship skills and character traits, but if you're going to focus on two, I would focus on communication and conflict resolution. The secular world emphasizes those two. Let me show you from Ephesians chapter 4 just how much scripture has to say about these things. If you've been around biblical counseling uh, long at all, you know that we've talked about Ephesians 4 quite a bit and there's four communication principles we've taught for decades from Ephesians chapter 4 uh, from the end of the chapter. But look at the beginning of, of Ephesians 4 the beginning of Ephesians 4 emphasizes not only communication and conflict resolution skills, but it emphasizes character traits. So Paul writes this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do a little bit of brainstorming here with me as we're thinking about relationship skills, character traits that... So I have it worded differently on your outline uh, than I do up here. I have relationship skills in my outline. I have what relationship character traits and skills do I need to develop. So I'm, I'm emphasizing not only skills like communication, conflict resolution, but I'm emphasizing character traits like humility, gentleness, patience as well. Um, and you, I'll, I'll just show you how important these are. What would be the opposite of gentleness? So harshness. Now think with me in relationships for a moment. So here's Paul emphasizing because of the gospel, chapters 1 to 3, what does the gospel do in our relationships? Does the gospel teach us to be more humble people? Yes. Yeah, because I'm humbled by my sin, I'm humbled by my Savior who's a servant. Does the gospel teach us to be more gentle people? So the gospel has a soothing effect on my soul. I learn to be more gracious because my God has been gracious with me. Well, I want... Uh, people that I'm discipling, young people I'm discipling toward marriage and making wise choices of marriage, I'm trying to get them to work on these things earlier, maybe even before they're in a serious relationship. I think that's actually better. It's wiser before you have all the emotions of that relationship that kind of, you know, uh, gets your brain all foggy uh, because you're in a romantic relationship now and you're not seeing as clearly as you, you used to see. Work as we're working with young people, we need to be discipling them toward having these gospel-saturated character traits because the opposites of these are the things that destroy relationships. Let's do a couple, uh, couple more. So the opposite of gentleness, you said harshness. What does harshness do in relationships or do to relationships? Words that cut. Okay. What else would you say? What does harshness do to relationships? Build barriers. Okay, why does it... Okay, you said destroy, you said build barriers. How does it build barriers? Uh, people would, would... When you attack them, they bring up their defenses, and part of the defense is flee. Right. Or be quiet, or yeah. whatever. You're not a safe person to talk to. Yeah. I don't feel safe around you. But the gospel does just the opposite. 
the gospel helps me become a more gentle person, then it's safer for my spouse to talk to me. Uh, sometime take the book of Ephesians chapters 4 to 6 and look at how concerned Paul was with relationships. Almost every application that he gives in chapters 4 to 6 is about relationships. So chapters 1 to 3, it's the gospel. Now chapters 4 to 6, how does who I am in Christ affect all of this? And he starts right off at this transition point in the book with humility, gentleness, patience. So obviously, what's the opposite of patience? Impatience, what would be another opposite? Frustration. How about irritability? How about if somebody is impatient and they're irritable, what does that do to relationships? Someone's irritable. Okay. So it makes the other people in the relationships relationship tense. So, yep, anxiety. So someone is, you have an irritable spouse. I've heard this so often in, in marriage counseling. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. It's like, I don't, you know, what's going to happen next? Well, shouldn't we be t helping people as we're discipling them to grow in gentleness, grow in patience, growing in forbearance? You know what forbearance is? Putting up with. Just learning how to endure. Uh, when you're in a romantic relationship, all you see is all the positives. And it's, you know, like the old statement, love is blind. You don't see all the flaws. Well, I want to help young people realize you not only love people for who they are, you've got to love people in spite of who they are. So do you know this person well enough to know their flaws, not just all the wonderful, beautiful things that you see about them, but do you have a, re a real picture of who this person is? is and then are you a for, are you going to be a forbearing person with their weaknesses uh, if you look at the end of chapter 4 and we don't have time to go through them but starting with verse 25 through 32 there are a number of key communication principles that I teach young people and I just think it's wise to start earlier rather than later don't wait till premarital counseling. Let's start discipling our teenagers and our college students even before they're in serious relationships with their roommate, with their parents, whoever it is. Start working on things like communication and conflict resolution even before you're in a serious romantic relationship. So much more could be said about that. Next one. Oh, I don't want to skip over this. This is. Uh, an important diagram for me because it goes right back to the heart as we saw as foundation and then we'll go into answering the question how will I know God's will uh, so here's the inner person and you can think about this chapter Ephesians chapter 4 and how that's directly connected with the heart because remember what our Lord said in Matthew 12 the verse I quoted the last time out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks well that's communication skills so I want to the the ones that I'm discipling, I want them to understand how their mouth, that's a, a skill, communication, how that's directly connected with their heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, their mouth speaks. And you'll get this very quickly. How do con let's say a, a theme of a person's heart is control. How do controlling people speak to others? Demanding. They demand. Condescending. Okay, they could Mm -hmm. They give orders. If everybody just did what I thought they should do, it would be great. Just follow my plan and my agenda. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you think a controlling person of that list, so let's look at character traits here, and there's this natural progression. Character traits. Would a, does a controlling person struggle with being gentle? with other people. Would a controlling person struggle with being uh, irritable and impatient rather than patient? So how do you get people to work on being more patient? It's not just like I'm going to paste on fruit, good fruit on my life. I think you got to work on heart change. You got to work on that controlling tendency changing. So as my heart changes, then these character traits are influenced and I learn to become a more gentle, 
person, a more patient person, and then my speech towards others, like communication, etc., changes. Uh, on my last slide, I had conflict resolution here. So let's go here and just think about that for a moment. In Peacemaker Ministries, we talk about two basic tendencies people have when it comes to conflict. Uh, that is, if you've ever seen a diagram called the, whoops, the slippery slope. Just out of curiosity, how many have seen a diagram called the slippery slope? So we talk about two basic tendencies, that people have escape tendencies and people have fighting tendencies or attack tendencies. Well, I see them more as heart-type themes. So escape-type themes would be things like being, I'm a people pleaser, so I want to pretend like there's no conflict. Well, what's a people pleaser? So look at my list. Humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. If a person understands their heart, this one's a little bit tricky, so you're going to have to think with me. If a person is a people pleaser, as Scripture would call them, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare. So someone who's just really concerned in their inner person with keeping people happy all the time, how is that going to affect this layer of these character traits we're looking at? What do you think? Look at the character traits and how would a, what would a people pleaser do? Case. Okay. It, just elaborate a little bit on that, Terry. Like um, to to totally be gentle, and not, I never want to push anything. Um, patient will let it all just kind of ride. Um, and forbearance, it would just be bearing with something that they shouldn't bear with. So instead of bringing up issues that they need to bring up, if they're a people pleaser, they just like they. Be, the next one is forbearing. Forbearance to one another in love, or is it possible for some people to be too forbearing? Mm -hmm. They put up with too much, and they don't know how to, as the chapter is going to talk about a little later on, Ephesians 4.15 says you have to learn how to speak the truth in love. Mm -hmm. That there's some people, they just don't want to speak the truth to people. And I think it has to do with, right here, it has to do with the heart. We've seen how control can lead to influencing the character traits and the relationship skills. Well, even on the other extreme, being a people pleaser influences your character traits and your relationship skills. So they may not want to even talk to people because they're so afraid of what the spouse is going to say to them if they bring up a controversial issue. Well, how do you, it's not just teaching them what you need. You have to learn to talk. To really, that's true, but to really deal with it in depth They've got, their heart needs to change. I've got to stop being a people pleaser. So that's the kind of work I do with my students when they have to do their, as I told you the last time, their marriage preparation project. I really try to get them to deal with what's going on in the inner person. How is that affecting your character traits, these things here in Ephesians 4, and then how is that affecting your relationship skills, especially conflict resolution and communication and I hope you agree with me that it would be wiser to start on those things than uh, earlier pre-engagement rather than just waiting to premarital counseling and hoping we can fit it in in five or six counseling sessions uh, before their their marriage. Let's go to the next question. How do you know God's will? And You've been hearing in this conference so far a heavy dose of God is sovereign. And I want to reassure people that I am discipling toward marriage or discipling toward being more marriageable, that their God is really alive. He is the true and living God. The Bible really is the Word of God. And what Scripture says really happens. So this was written thousands of years ago, but it can be true of you too, that the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, that that's not just for Jacob thousands of years ago, that can be for us, that our God is actually involved and intimately acquainted, as Psalms say, He is intimately acquainted with all our ways, he has a plan that is working out for my life. So 
I have a job to do, and God is guaranteed to do His job. So I have a role, God has a role. What's my role? My role, according to Scripture, is to actively trust, and my role is to be working on what do I need to work on to be more marriageable. God's role is to be, He's the God of providence. He's orchestrating events in our lives. Um, I'll just, I could give you so many examples of this, but I'll just give you one from our life right now. Uh, I told you yesterday morning I was having a conversation with this young man who is pursuing my daughter, and we've given him permission uh, to pursue our daughter, and she wants to be pursued, believe me. Um, um, and I'm very happy with this pursuit. Um, I was his pastor back in Virginia. God was writing a story. I had no idea that God's writing a story. His family moved away when he was uh, early teens. And then a few years later, we moved away. We moved to California 10 years ago to teach out here at the Master's College. Well, all these years, my daughter and his sister have been best friends. So a year ago, my daughter goes to her best friend's wedding in Italy. And it's like, ding, 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 ding. Why haven't we thought of each other before? And this whole friendship gets rekindled again. And pretty soon, and they're, he's 24 and she's 23, and they just start realizing, wow, you know, this is just wonderful. Our backgrounds are similar. We grew up in the same type of homes. We have similar doctrinal convictions. We're headed the same direction in life. And here we are almost a year into this now of him pursuing her and now they're talking about marriage. Well, I just see God orchestrating all of that. I don't think that that's a fluke. I, I call that, the theologically, we call that the providence of God. Uh, in this, <clears throat> in your notes, you have a statement from, I think, the best book that's been written on finding God's will for your life, uh, James Petty's book, Step by Step. And he writes this, The Bible teaches that God does have one specific plan for your life, and the events and choices of your life irresistibly and sovereignly work that plan in every detail. It has all your mistakes, blindnesses, and sins accounted for in advance. And without understanding providence, we will never be able to think clearly about God's daily involvement with our lives. Much of the confusion about God's guidance in Christian circles is caused by a lack of understanding of this historic doctrine. So, real practically, it leads to answering this question. And I'm going to put two things in here. And that's the two points, how I know God's will, one and two. And I'll elaborate on those in just a moment. Uh, has lots of practical ramifications thinking about this. Number one, uh, is there one person? And this is going to sound like a little bit of a contradiction compared to what um, I said earlier. Is there one person? The answer to that is yes. Does God want you to be on this frantic search trying to find that one person? The answer to that is no. Uh, your job is to trust. He is leading. His providence is leading. He is your shepherd. Uh, he is, as Psalms say, Psalm 139, He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He is uh, he's involved in right now. He, I mean, he's involved in the events of today and the fact that you're here. Whether you feel it or not, the sovereign God of the universe is in control. And I like to think of these two things. On the one hand, he's guiding me with wisdom. So on the one hand, he's helping me grow in biblical wisdom. And that's like his one hand of guidance. And he's shepherding me with biblical principles. And my job is to submissively, trustingly, try my best by the grace of God to be living out biblical principles. And he's guiding my life with, it, with that hand. And then there's this thing called providence. And he's guiding my life. That's his other hand. Is his, the unseen hand of God in the events of my life. Well, the same thing's happening with young people, but they're frantic. You know, they're frantically trying to find the right person. And I want to reassure them, you have a very loving shepherd. He is involved in your life. The Lord is my shepherd. 
He will lead you in paths of righteousness for His namesake. So what do you do? Psalm 27. I would have despaired unless I'd seen the goodness of the Lord in the hand of the living. Wait, my soul, wait. Rest in the Lord. So I want to teach them, trust God's shepherding in your life. Whether you're feeling it or not, He is there and He's orchestrating the events of your life. But at the same time, be doing what you're supposed to be doing, and that is living out biblical principles, trying the best you can to be the person God uh, wants you to be. That leads then to the next logical question. So just to summarize it here, my job is to grow in wisdom and trust the Lord. The Lord's job is to lead. And I think that captures biblically what I sense is going on with the big picture biblically of uh, this question, how will I know God's will? How do you know when you're ready for marriage? I've had 40-year-old men that I've counseled. I actually said to one guy, I wish you would have never gotten married uh, because he just wanted to be a little boy. He wanted his teenage boys to be his best buddies. He didn't want to be a father. And I was working with him on trying to grow, get him to grow up. We call it the Peter Pan syndrome. Um, you know, you need to be a father. You're not your boy's best friend. You've you got to be their father in their life. So we, we know that there are 40-year-olds <clears throat> that you look at them and you go, wow, they just should not be married. And so is the answer to this, well, you have to wait till you're older to get married. Well, that's what the culture's saying. Culture's saying that if you wait until age 27 for a guy and age 26 for a girl, your divorce rate statistic dramatically goes down. And that's true. So typically in our culture, if a guy waits till 27 and a girl waits to 26. Now, that's not what's happening. I just read this in the last couple of days. The median age right now is 27 for women for actual marriage and 29 for men. So people are waiting a long time to get married right now. And a lot of that has to do with uh, things like cohabitation. I don't want to get tied down. I want to have some fun right now, and I'll wait till I'm older to, to get married. But the literature is saying wait until you're at least 27 for a guy and 26 for, for a girl. Well, I've met, you've met people, you know people that are in their early 20s, and they're very ready for marriage. So it's not a matter, I don't believe it's a matter of age. I believe it's a matter of maturity. Um, so how do you answer this question of how do you know when you're ready for marriage? I think it's are, when are you ready or are you on the path to accepting what it means to be a man or a woman? There's some people, in the, like the guy I told you about, he was in his 40s, but he had never accepted the idea of what does it mean to be a man, biblically. Uh, so what should we be doing with young people? We should be teaching them biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. So I've met plenty, I know plenty of early 20-year-olds that are godly. They take their responsibilities of manhood and womanhood seriously, and they're very ready for marriage. The question is more about maturity rather than it is your physical age. Uh, I found this years ago, and I wish I was related to this person, Baker's Dictionary of Theology. I'd have more money than what I'd do if I was related to them. But I thought this was really good. On their article on marriage in Baker's Dictionary of Theology, they said this, to sunder one's parental relationships and join oneself in intimate lifelong union <clears throat> with a person who hitherto has been a stranger demands a considerable degree of maturity as expressed in a capacity for self-giving love, emotional stability, and the capacity to understand what is involved in committing one's life to another in marriage. Marriage is for those who have grown up. That is a good statement. Marriage is for those who have grown up. Yes. <clears throat> I asked my grandmother one time, I said, uh, how do you know that uh, you and my grandfather really love each other? And her comment just floored me. She said, I just know. <laughs> That's called maturity, I believe. You just mm -hmm. know it's ready. You will know. Mm -hmm. you I'm committed to this person. Right. This is the person I want to spend my life with, and etc. So what I've done here on this point is <clears throat> I've tried to define in a more simplified version what is womanhood biblically, what is manhood. If my boys were here, and so I have three sons, 
29, 27, and 24. And if I said to them, to any one of them, uh, tell these folks what manhood is, biblically, I'd be really disappointed if they couldn't rattle this off for you because I drilled it into their heads as I was trying to disciple them as they were growing up. Now, what is womanhood? What is manhood? I hope you would agree with me that these are things we've got to be teaching college students even before they make that serious commitment of marriage is what does it mean to be a man who's taking on a responsibility of of marriage? What does it mean to be a, a woman? It's not just about Ernie and Rose holding hands and happily skipping through life together. As nice and romantic as that sounds, uh, that doesn't pay the bills. Love doesn't pay the bills. So I was pleased yesterday when I was having the talk with, another talk with this young man that's pursuing my daughter. And uh, he was, we were talking a little bit about timing and, you know, where are things headed, etc. And he said, well, I have to be able to provide for her. And I'm going, yeah, that's what I want to hear as a dad. This is not just about we love each other, but you know, what is your calling in life? How are you going to provide for your family, etc.? So what is womanhood, according to Proverbs? <clears throat> There's a lot of different places you could go in Scripture, but what's the famous chapter, obviously? 31, and all the ladies hate that chapter. Um, just to encourage you a little bit, Ladies, I don't believe that that, I believe that's written as a goal. It's not written as uh, absolutes. Here's what I mean by that. In, in Hebrew, the word wisdom is feminine. So what I believe the writer of, he, of Proverbs is doing is all through Proverbs, it's saying wisdom, feminine, does this, she does this. So a, by a wise woman builds her house. And then chapter 31 is, if you had this composite in one woman, what would it look like? So it's not like this is a woman who ever actually existed. It's like the perfectly wise woman would look like this. Because the book of Proverbs is building up, building up, building up to this is what wisdom would look like in one woman. So just to encourage you a little bit. It's like the qualifications for a pastor or elder in 1 Timothy 3, and you read them and you go, well, if everybody really knew me, uh, would anybody be qualified for ministry? But I believe that has to do with your outward reputation rather than the way you know yourself on the inside. So it's, this is what we're striving for. So who is this woman according to Proverbs? Well, she displays the characteristics of wisdom. She has a, these are things that Proverbs em emphasizes. She has a relationship with the Lord. What does that mean? Well, because she fears the Lord, she's submitted to the Lord's purposes in her life. She recognizes, it's really obvious in the book of Proverbs and other places in Scripture, Titus chapter 2, that the home is her special sphere of influence. She, Proverbs and other places, First Peter 3, um, emphasizes to women to have a balanced perspective on inward versus outward beauty. Are you going to find, you know, is, a, is one guy going to find a woman who has all of these things? Or, a, or a, is a woman going to find a guy that has all the things I'm going to put up? And the answer to that is no. It's what is the path, what trajectory is going in or happening in this person's life? It's about direction, not perfection. It, that's what I've tried to, we've tried to emphasize with our children, is you're not going to find a perfect person. It's about direction, not perfection. Where, where is this person headed in life? Is their heart submitted to the Lord? Do they want to be a godly person? And they're trying to grow in their walk with the Lord, and they're working on things like this. Uh, she recognizes that part of her role is to be a faithful blessing to her husband, as Proverbs 31 uh, talks about. What about biblical manhood? <clears throat> this comes from a book called uh, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And they define manhood, as you have in your notes, a, you have some blanks there. A godly man has a sense of responsibility to lead, 
provide for and protect women and family. Let me say it again. A godly man has a sense of responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women and family. So if I said to one of my boys, hey guys, what does it mean to be a man? They would say to lovingly lead, lovingly provide for, and lovingly protect. That's the essence of manhood. What has God, and are we confused in a culture about that? You know, when does somebody become a man? Uh, we don't have, is it getting married? Well, we know guys that are married that they definitely aren't fulfilling their responsibilities as a man. What in the world does it mean to be a man? Does it mean you drive a Harley? Uh, in my neck of the woods where I grew up in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, it meant you went deer hunting. That's, that's how you knew you were a man, is when you, you finally were going deer hunting and you're, you're a man. Or you're a man if you carry a pocket knife. That's how you know you're a man. How do you know you're a man? Uh, as I think biblically about a composite of what the scriptures say a man is designed by God to do, he has a responsibility to lovingly lead, which means things like being a servant, learning to take the initiative, providing for, lovingly providing for, and lovingly protecting. A few years ago, there was a shooting at a Baptist church in the Fort Worth area. This is a true story. Maybe you remember this happening. It was on a Wednesday night, and the shooter walked into their Wednesday night service during the youth meeting in the old sanctuary of, of this Southern Baptist church and started shooting teens and youth leaders in the old sanctuary. Well, there was a and a number of people were killed. People were hiding under the pews in the old sanctuary, etc. Well, the shooter went out into the foyer, the old foyer of the church building, and there was a man and woman sitting on a pew out in the foyer. The man hid behind his wife as the shooter walked by. The shooter did not shoot them. The, he went back in killed some more people and wounded some more people, walked out into the foyer again, and the man hid behind his wife again. Now, what does that do to you when I tell you that story? Don't we have an, in, I believe it's an inbuilt sense by God, there's just something wrong with this. Men are supposed to protect women. Uh, guess what she did? She divorced him. This is a true story. I've, I found out from a biblical counselor that worked in that area. Now, I don't believe that's a biblical ground for divorce. That doesn't <laughs> fall into the categories of biblical grounds for divorce, at least the way I understand divorce and remarriage in Scripture. But there's something in, my, in the inside of me that goes, I sure do understand it. Uh, that just does not seem right. If a mugger would walk... What's that? Isn't that abandonment? It could be abandonment, but it, not as he would claim to be a believer, so that's where it wouldn't fit in 1 Corinthians 7. What are men called to do? Lovingly lead, lovingly provide for, lovingly protect. Should we be teaching our young men how to be godly men? Uh, even before they're married, should we be teaching our young women how to be godly women? And are they going to be more marriageable if we are doing that? they're going to make wiser choices, they're going to be in a better position to actually be married and have stable marriages if we teach them those things uh, ahead of time. Uh, we have a lot of work to do in that area because our culture is just uh, falling apart in, in regards to what does it mean for men to be leaders, um, loving leaders, uh, etc. Let's keep going. That leads then to questions like, of all these methods that get talked about, what methodology do we use? I mean, there's just so many methodologies that are being talked about, like courtship, there's dating, casual dating, there's obviously cohabitation. Um, I mentioned in the first session that I don't believe there's any one method that scripture promotes. I've read articles by people that are trying to resurrect betrothal and saying that that's the biblical method that you should be promoting. And then what I say to those folks is if you're going to practice betrothal, where are you going to get the camels? Uh, 
you know if we're gonna you know if we're gonna say that's the methodology you better start following it down to detail if you're gonna say try to make the Bible make you're gonna make the Bible and that's gonna be your methodology we got to practice the whole dowry what thing be betrothal's matching so it'd be the parents choosing I actually had a girl a young lady say to me I it just would make life a whole lot easier if my dad <laughs> would just pick um, I don't believe scripture promotes any one methodology. What I believe scripture promotes is wisdom. Now, think about this for me, with me for a moment. The Bible, we say about the Bible, is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. So it's the very Word of God, and it's inerrant. It is without error in all it teaches. That makes the Bible timeless truth. So no matter the people or the culture, biblical principles apply. You with me so far as I talk doctrine with you a little bit? So, if it's the inerrant Word of God, God in His wisdom gave us a book that applies to all people of all cultures of all times. It wouldn't make sense that He would, in His Word, just teach one methodology because this is timeless truth. But does Scripture emphasize wisdom? All over the place, Scripture emphasizes wisdom. So the way I like to say it is whatever methodology your culture promotes, if it's, you know, you could say is it an ungodly methodology like cohabitation, I'm not talking about that. There's some things that clearly are out of bounds biblically. But within the bounds of biblical principles, use wisdom in practicing that methodology. Uh, scripture says it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So as I'm teaching young people to make a wise choice, so you go, okay, well, what about online dating? You know, what about eHarmony? Well, use wisdom. Uh, do people end up with good marriages with eHarmony? Yes. Do some people end up with bad marriages with eHarmony? You better believe it. Um, you know, if eHarmony or whatever the dating service starts to promise you take our test of compatibility and we are finding your soulmate for you well what happens when that person all of a sudden their interests change so I'm not the same person that I was when I got married and if my wife was here she would go praise God that he's not the same person yeah. some of our interests have changed you know they some of these matching services they match you based upon do you both have a common interest in whatever hobby, jogging, or you know whatever it is? And so there's compatibility tests. Well, what happens when you don't have those interests uh, uh, any longer? Uh, you're 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 setting people up with expectations, and then the expectations are no longer being met. So in the coming years, are we going to be hearing about divorces? I think we will, e even though people went through eHarmony or or whoever it was. Uh, the key would be, did you ask the right questions? Did you really know the person? Is this just about an online relationship? Is it easy not to be the real you online? So I want to teach young people, if you're going to use an online service, you've got to get to know the real person, not the person that they say they are or online. How does this person, how does he interact with his parents? How does she interact with her parents? What's this person's work ethic? Uh, this is the person you're saying you're going to live with for the rest of your life. You better get to know the real person, not this online person that they really want you uh, to get to know. So what would this look like? I came up with a whole bunch of P's here. So there's my Baptist. Um, <clears throat> so here's a whole bunch of P's for you. My Baptist heritage coming out. What would biblical wisdom look like? It's things like parents being involved, loving parents who are discipling their children. I don't want to be oppressive with my daughter. I want her to enjoy this. I want her to enjoy just getting to know her future husband. I don't want to be oppressive to him, but I sure do want to give some loving guidance to them to keep them from falling off to the, the sides. So there's parental involvement. Would scripture emphasize purity? You better believe it. So whatever methodology you use, you've got to work on staying pure. 
Uh, I've talked to this young man about that, and they've talked to each other about that, and they're setting up standards for when they're alone together. Uh, what are their guidelines and standards for protecting the purity of their relationship? They, you ought to be working on things to prepare right now. That's biblical wisdom. Just what should you be working on right now? Scripture emphasizes being patient. Like I already said, Psalm 27. You need to be bathing this whole process in prayer and then trusting the Lord. Hang around the right people and places. The local church is a wonderful place uh, to meet your future spouse. Missions trips. Um, run hard toward Christ and then look around and see who's running with you. Get it be around the right people, the right places, and... The Lord in His providence is directing in all those circumstances. And then ask the proper questions. Uh, I know it sounds unromantic, but uh, this whole divorce statistic is really bugging me. And I think we can do better. And it's because we're not asking wise questions. About, it's, we're just basing it upon attraction and chemistry and sexual relationship and all of those type of things rather than what's the direction in this person's life, um, etc. And then I have a possible pattern, but you know what, for the sake of time I'm not even going to go into what I think the possible pattern is because I don't want to sound like I'm teaching a methodology. Um, in conclusion, so foundation, we have work to do there just helping people lay the right foundation. Then five questions for the first floor. If people, if young people, if their parents and youth pastors or people who are discipling young people were working on this stuff, wouldn't you, don't you think you'd have a couple more prepared for premarital counseling? So if, as a parent, I'm working on these type of issues with my children when my kids get to premarital counseling, the premarital counselor, the pre premarital counselor's job then is, okay, now you've been discipled by your parents, you've been discipled by your parents, now let's think about how does your relationship work together. And it would be a whole lot easier to be doing premarital counseling rather than trying to cram all of how do you do marriage in six premarital counseling sessions. Sowing, reaping. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I have to believe that what I've been trying to portray in these two sessions is a God-glorifying way of marriage preparation and that God's ways work. If I'm working on these kind of issues, it'll reap the harvest of a marriage that brings more glory to God. Not perfect marriage, because there's no such thing. We live in a fallen planet with other fallen people, but by the grace of God, because of the power of the gospel working in our lives, if we endeavor by His grace to build wisely here, we can have marriages that are more stable and God-glorifying. Now, feel free to push back here just for a couple of minutes, or what kind of questions does this raise? I know this can feel overwhelming. I hope you're hearing things like parental discipleship, youth pastors discipling godly women, taking younger women under their wing and mentoring them. I hope that's the kind of stuff that you're hearing as the implications of this. Yes? One, one of the, if you don't follow this pattern, there is no indication that it's going to fail or succeed. But you have to work at it. You have to be committed to do it. You have to want to go through life with the person that God put in the path. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which goes back to what you and I were talking yeah. about, just being committed. Yeah. We know our culture has an issue with commitment. Oh, <laughs> <yes>. What commitment? <laughs> Other questions, comments, concerns? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Involved are you and your wife in that courtship, for lack of a better word? I mean, 
Supposing they're not dating, because you didn't go into the biblical dating thing. Uh-huh. Um, supposing they're not doing the casual thing. Uh-huh. How involved are you in your life? You said you've spoken to this young man. What were the conditions upon which you said, yes, we mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you a quick synopsis, synopsis of that. Uh, so about age 12 or 13, I had a conversation with my daughters and uh, they made an agreement with me. We actually shook hands on it. And I said, uh, it might have been a little older, 14. Uh, when I knew that they were going to start being more interested in boys and boys being interested in them, I said, um, can we make an agreement that uh, because I love you, um, that I'll be involved in these type of conversations. And they both, or all three girls, uh, said to me, Dad, we'd love for you to be involved in that. And they actually shook hands with me. So uh, we made a agreement that if a boy would be interested in them, ask them out on a date or whatever, um, that if they were not interested in the guy, that they could just say no right away. Uh, but if they were, possibly interested, if the timing was right, they were old enough, etc., that, uh, that the agreement was for them to call me. And that's very intimidating for a young man, uh, but uh, especially when I show them my shotgun. Um, just, just kidding. Um, but so all of the, uh, the young men that have pursued my daughters have called me and asked for permission. And then I try to be involved with just staying in touch with those, with both, both sides. Uh, our daughter, just staying up to speed with what she's thinking, and then with the young man, staying up to speed with what he's thinking, not, but trying not to be oppressive uh, <coughs> about it. And we've done this with five of six children now, three boys being involved and in trying to help them make a wise decision and now we're on our second of three daughters we've actually had someone pursue our younger daughter but she is 18 and she, both she and I or us uh, we did not think the timing was right she wanted to focus on college first before being pursued <coughs> by a young man so we told him no uh, but the timing was right for our 23 year old daughter uh, she's 23 in fact legally she doesn't even need my advice she could right. just ignore what I have to say totally, but she wants us to be involved. So that's kind of what it's looked like in our our lives. It's discipleship. We're trying to help disciple our children through this time period in their life. Yes, ma'am. The question that I always get is, how long does that process go on? I mean, if you have a 25-year-old kid, you know, and how long would you want or expect? be in their lives and then like, they push back. And mm -hmm. That opens up a whole yeah. thing of, you know, like if parents don't agree with the choice of their child's spouse, you know, what do you do? And I just, I try to discuss that with my students of how do you respond to your parents if they not don't agree with your choice of a spouse. Um, how long are you involved as a parent? Well, I think you should always be involved. I mean, even when my children, if I'm in my 80s and they're in their 60s, I hope they honor me and they w are wanting my guidance. Should I be imposing it on them? Absolutely not, because they're not required to obey me any longer. So the, when do children have to obey parents and when does that stop? I think that's when they become an adult. And then that's not age 18 necessarily, it's what is an adult. And so you think through characteristics of adulthood, when do you become an adult? Well, you're an adult when you're providing for yourself. Uh, so I say to my students, are, are your parents still your source of provision? And they say, you know, so they're living you know, 500 miles from home. Well, your parents pay your school bill. Yes. Well, then you're still under their roof. Mm -hmm. Are they claiming you on income taxes? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, guess what? You're still under the obligation to obey your parents uh, because you're, you, you're not an adult yet. You're an adult when you, adults feed themselves. So um, when you're at the place where you're self-supporting, but we're always under the obligation to honor. So 
Ephesians 6, children obey your parents, honor your father and mother. There's a time when the obedience stops, but honoring never stops. We perpetually honor our parents. And that's real tricky in this time frame in the early 20s of when does that transition take place. I actually had one of my students, uh, master's students, master of arts students, uh, she wrote her thesis on this whole topic because we get it, this question quite regularly about parents who are not agreeing with their child's choice of a spouse. And uh, we had a 29-year-old girl who was a staff member at Masters whose parents lived far away. They would not give their blessing to her, a 31-year-old guy who was pursuing her and uh, they were going to refuse to come to the wedding, etc. But as Bible faculty at Masters, we couldn't see anything ungodly about the relationship. We actually thought her parents were being oppressive. And it was the last resort, but we told her we thought that she had, she was not under an obligation to obey her parents mm -hmm. because she was an independent adult. She was paying her own bills, etc. But we did that very cautiously. <laughs> All right, let me close in prayer for you, and then we can eat. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time to discuss uh, your word. And I know there's a lot of unanswered questions with what we've talked about. But help us, Lord, to have wisdom in light of the culture we're living in and better preparing the next generation for making a wise choice of a spouse. And uh, encourage that generation, Lord, that they can actually have marriages that are stable uh, they don't have to be a divorce statistic. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2014. IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.